Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 177 of The Bowery Boys, a walk through Little Italy. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash boweryboys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Fighting through cold and flu season. Mm. Our voices may be a little scratchy for this one. As we take you on a little visit to one of the most enchanting neighborhoods of New York City, Little Italy, a popular tourist destination that was once the heart of Italian life in New York City. You just called it enchanting. I think that we could use all kinds of words to describe Little Italy, including colorful, Overtly commercial, mm-hmm. delicious smelling mm-hmm. sometimes, enduring. Of course, it's known for its restaurants, known for the San Gennaro Festival, which happens every year. But it is a shell of its former self, wouldn't you say, Tom? It only comprises today a few city blocks, which is much smaller than what the original Italian neighborhood would have been a hundred years ago. Right. It's it's much quicker to walk through today, and you can get to the other side, say around Broom Street on Mulberry, wondering what exactly you just walked through. What What's real that you just saw? You might have just smelled some pizza. Maybe you were beckoned in by a restaurant barker, and perhaps you even contemplate picking up a Kiss Me, I'm Italian apron. <laughs> but, but what is that? And how does that relate to the neighborhood that was once home to thousands of mm-hmm. newly arriving immigrants. Now, there are other larger Italian neighborhoods in New York, a lot of them, and in the metropolitan area, places where you might find the quote-unquote real experience of being an Italian New Yorker. But we're going to get to the core of the story of why the Italians settled here in the late 19th century, and we'll ruminate a little bit about its fate going forward into the future. So join us as we push beyond some of the cultural cliches to find the real heart of Little Italy. To start the show, we usually start it with the situate the listener, Mm -hmm. you know, like 
finding on the map where the place is for those who don't know. In this case, this is quite important to the story because it has changed over time. What we call, quote unquote, Little Italy is much different than it was even 25 years ago. That's right. And we're not just talking about areas in New York City where Italians moved, because otherwise, that's a much bigger episode. That Mm -hmm. would be called Italians in New York Mm -hmm. or Italians in the United States. There's several neighborhoods. We're talking about Manhattan's Little Italy neighborhood. Downtown. Right. Because there are multiple. Mm -hmm. Even in Manhattan. So the, the Little Italy we're talking about is a neighborhood in Lower Manhattan that was the most famous of the Italian American neighborhoods in the city. It's still there. It's quite a bit smaller today than it was. Today's neighborhood is technically bordered to the north by Nolita, which we'll get to in a second, and the south by Chinatown, the west by Soho, and by the east uh, by Bowery. Mm -hmm. But that paints, if you can imagine that in your head, a much larger neighborhood than truly exists today. Because really, if we're talking about taking a walk through Little Italy today, we're really just talking about starting a canal and Mulberry Street and mm-hmm. walking north until basically Broome, which is really three blocks. Yes, five to ten minutes stroll, basically. Yeah, you get to Hester, then you get to Grand, then you get to Broome, and then you're kind of done. The definition of a pocket neighborhood. Once you get to Grand, if you turn to the right, you can walk a couple steps, and you've got Ferrara on the right, you've got the food shops, the cheese shops on the left, so there's a little detour on, on Grand Street. Obviously... Little Italy was much bigger than this Mm -hmm. back in its heyday. And this heyday would be in the 1880s, 90s, 1900, 1910. So that's really the period we're going to be talking about today, during which Little Italy spread out into this much bigger area. The original old Little Italy, in fact, was not here north of Canal Street, but was south of Canal Street down in an area called Mulberry Bend. To the north, though, let's back up here, Mm -hmm. because you mentioned Nolita. Nolita is a fairly new neighborhood, and of course that stands for... The term is new. Yeah, the term is new, of course. That stands for North of Little Italy. That's right. This is the area that's basically between Broome and Houston Street. Now, I've been fighting this name for many years, because this is a name that's come up by real estate people, essentially. Right. It's not an organic name of the neighborhood. A few years Because ago, this was part of Little Italy. And it was there, Little Italy. There, there are huge landmarks like St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. Lombardi's Pizza is right. in, quote-unquote, Nolita. I remember when we had our show on Old St. Pat's, how incensed we were to even use the word Nolita. I would say, however, in 2015, it is its own little neighborhood. It's all upscale shops and wine bars everywhere. Wine bars. <laughs> There's like a wine bar and shoe shops. Wine, that's like 80% wine bars of the shops. Small plates. Small, small, pl- oh small plates. You walk down Mulberry oh. Street, they serve you on big <laughs> plates. You walk through Nolita, it's nothing but annoying small plates. And fancy shoes. Fancy shoes and small plates. So, so right, Nolita is not Little Italy. Absolutely anymore. not. It, it really isn't. So that's the north side, but on the south side, the original Italian neighborhood, in fact, the core of the Italian neighborhood was down here at Mulberry Bend, which is Mulberry Street where it takes a little curve to the east and is notable today for the park that's there called Columbus Park. Right. Let's rewind quickly to the 18th century when this whole area was New York's biggest water supply. It was the Collect Pond uh, in the 18th century. 
the pond was used for industry. There were breweries and factories built around this pond. It took up this entire area. Although called the freshwater pond by some, it was the water was not very fresh. To make a long story short, they decided to drain the pond in 1811 by way of a canal a large portion of which would become known as Canal Street. And then they filled in the pond with the landfill. Unfortunately, when they, when they filled it in, they didn't do such a great job with the drainage process. And the land that they left behind was a bit unstable and unsuitable for building, but they built right on top of it anyway. They didn't so really know. They, they didn't know at the time. So the houses, the shops and things that they built on top of this land started to settle in odd ways. It became unsuitable for living and people took off. Leaving behind these buildings, instead of knocking them down, they just became slums. And it was into these buildings that the newly arriving Irish immigrants would move in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, thus creating this dangerous neighborhood of vice and crime, the Five Points neighborhood. So this area, this was ground zero for newly arriving immigrants who were very poor. It happened with the Irish and would also happen 50 years later, 40 years later with the Italians. So we have covered many immigration movements throughout our past shows through these these many years. And each group of immigrants come to America with just slightly different, very unique situations. The Irish, for instance, came here in the 1830s and 1840s. 1850s primarily, due to famine. The Chinese would come afterwards, come mostly from the West. Many of them had already been here for work and had come from the West Coast. Russian Jews would be arriving in the 1880s because they were fleeing persecution. You could say that the origin of one of the most prominent waves of Italian immigration that would happen here in the late 1870s, 1880s, actually began in the year 1850 with the arrival of one Italian, that Italian being Giuseppe Garibaldi. Mm -hmm. He was a military leader principally involved with the unification of the nation of Italy. Up to that point, the country we call Italy today was, Mm -hmm. back then, in 1850, a collection of nation-states and was not a unified country. And very much different in terms of northern Italian provinces and southern Italians. Quite different cultures. So Garibaldi had led a failed attempt to unite these nation-states, but it was unsuccessful, so fled, and in 1850 arrived in New York or rather arrived in Staten Island, where he lived with a friend and inventor, Antonio Meucci. So here in Staten Island, Garibaldi laid low and even worked at a candle factory. He would eventually return to Italy in 1854, but I wanted to say that the house that he stayed in is a museum, and you can visit it in Staten Island today, and I recommend it. Garibaldi returned in 1854, recommenced in this war against the Bourbons to make Italy an independent country. And finally, in 1871, eventually I'm speeding through international history here, I apologize. But in 1871 is when the Kingdom of Italy is finally created. Which sounds like a a wonderful moment for unified Italy, but it seems like that was also done to the detriment, to a certain degree, of Southern Italians. And you had already inferred this just now with the idea of basically two groups of Italians being married together in this new union. The relatively sophisticated Northern Italians are the ones with the great Renaissance traditions uh, and all the great sculptors and artists. 
And then in the south, what they would call the Mezzogiorno, they would be a lot more poor population, and they would remain so even following the unification of Italy. And it would be a place of great poverty. When this unification happened, not only were the, the people in southern Italy getting sort of screwed over by the northerners who were making all of the new laws that they would abide by, they were getting new taxes imposed upon them as well, but they were also having to deal with a new competition from the north and from other parts of the world that they never had had to deal with before. So they were also feeling the globalized economy crunching down on them They as were well. quite isolated, and now they were part of this larger country. And it actually made life quite difficult for them immediately after unification. Now, in terms of immigration, before... 1871, if you were to sort of look at the statistics, most of the Italian immigrants that had come to the United States were from the north and were generally speaking artisans, trained laborers. But then after unification, with this increase of the poverty and disease and overpopulation, and of course, you know, not just high taxes, but then a lot of corrupt government, corrupt churches even at this period, almost all the Italian immigration that would happen after that date would come from the south. So if you're looking at a map, uh, Italy as the boot and football, the regions that are basically like the foot part of that of the boot, Basilicata and Campania and Calabria, and then of course, Sicily, of course, those would be the areas where most of the immigration would come from into the United States during this period. So between 1880 and 1920, 4 million Italians would arrive into the United States, and a majority of them would arrive through New York City. Now, unlike these other groups, like the Irish, for instance, most of them were just men that arrived here for work. Depending on the year, uh, it changed, but between 75 and 90% of these people were men. Yeah, which is a huge number, which is, I think, often overlooked in the popular retelling of this of the story, because they were coming to seek their fortune. This was not a story of people coming over to immediately settle down and start a new life in the new world. It was people who were desperate back in their villages coming men leaving their wives who were referred to as white widows (laughs) to uh, come to the US and to make their fortunes and then to go back to bring their money back to Italy. Over the course of years, many of them just moved their families here. Life did seem to be a lot better here than than it was back in southern Italy. Many of these thousands that came through New York settled in the Italian sections of cities all over the United States, including Chicago and Boston, and would be employed by these U.S. companies to help build some of America's great technological projects of the late 19th century, including the New York subway. And we're going to get into all of these occupations and, and, and things in a minute here. But geographically speaking, in terms of Little Italy, why were these immigrants settling here around the Five Points area? So by the 1880s, the heart of downtown Italian population, I'll explain that in a second, would be specifically on Mulberry Street and the Mulberry Bend and those streets you know, that are around it. They're arriving in this neighborhood specifically because it is the cheapest area to live. 
groups of people tended to cluster around those that had similar cultures and similar language. So you actually had little spots around this area, like individual blocks and even individual buildings that would have just people from one region. Those people on Mulberry, for instance, tended to be all Neapolitans, basically from around Naples and in the region of Campania. Elizabeth Street would tend to be the place where Sicilians would live, at least in the 1880s and 1890s before people branched out a little bit more. And I, this all makes perfect sense. So if, if you're arriving and you don't speak the language, you want to be around people who can speak your dialect and who understand you. And it's probably easier to find a place to live sure. if mm-hmm. you can speak to them and you trust them, especially if you're coming from a village. This was not actually the first Italian settlement in Manhattan in the late 19th century. Up in East Harlem, there was also another huge Italian neighborhood. When I kept looking at old newspapers for the phrase Little Italy, this is actually what came up first. This was actually called Little Italy before then. This area of 110th Street to like 112th Street and 1st and 2nd Avenues. The difference is this would primarily be northern Italians. So that's the difference between these two big enclaves of Italians Mm -hmm. here. So in the New York Times in 1888, I read kind of a startling quote that described these two neighborhoods very differently and how people might have seen them differently. So this was 1888, quote, about 25,000 Italians had come to the United States this year. There were about 60 to 70,000 Italians in New York City already. About 8,000 live in Little Italy, meaning up up in Upper Manhattan, and are of the better class. Nearly 2,500 live in Mulberry Street, unquote. So that is a newspaper depiction of how people saw these two different groups of people. Real overt discrimination. And by the way, those figures are not accurate at all. I mean, nothing about that passage is actually accurate. But it's just to go to show you that how people saw this new wave was much different than what they were used to when they were interacting with new Italian immigrants that had come 20 years earlier. I just want to add that many of these Italians uh, before 1892 were coming in through Castle Garden, which was the immigrant processing station that was at the foot of Manhattan, today's Battery Park. But in 1892 was when Ellis Island would open and the Italians would actually find themselves the most sizable group of the large number of immigrants that were coming through America through this post. And in terms of just numbers, I mean, if we look at how many Italians were living in New York City in 1850, there were 833 (laughs) Italian-born citizens. 1850. So, And if we jump forward to the 1880s, New York was averaging 30,000 Italians arriving every year. So by 1900, there were 250,000 and people living in New York City who identified as Italian-American. What's so shocking about that 833 number you yes. threw out earlier, that would be like the population of half a block right. by the 1880s down here in Little Italy. And this immigration really picked up in the 1880s and 1890s, again, with mostly men at the beginning who were coming over, mostly people who were at least anticipating that they'd be going back to Italy. 43% of those who arrived would return to Italy, but 57% would stay put. 
So, and at some point, you know, reach out for their families to come over and join them. And you see how, as the decades progressed, they built their own real world here. Sometimes they'd be living with, or often they'd be living with families uh, that would let out one of their bedrooms to a bunch of lodgers, sometimes fitting six, eight people in a room that we would think would be made for one or two people. (laughs) Many of these people were quote, day laborers. So they would head off to to do day jobs. It was really unskilled work, just physical work for which they were not compensated very well. Incredibly dangerous at times. And these jobs were often arranged for them through sort of brokers called padroni. These were power brokers who would often be the first point of contact that somebody would have when they when they arrived, a newly arrived immigrant would go to a padroni, maybe had already been in touch with the padroni mm-hmm. and was coming over because somebody had set up everything for them in advance and had reached out to them while they were still living in Italy. But they would come over, come through this broker who would set them up with a cheap place to live and a a job. And this broker, Padroni, would be getting a cut of all of the revenues. Many companies in the United States actively were recruiting Southern Italians in this fashion. And, of course, was not popular with those who already lived in America and saw this as a threat to their to occupations. The labor market. Mm-hmm. And let's remember that the U.S. is going through an incredible expansion at the same time. And so you had alluded earlier to the, the railroads needing to be built, dams mm-hmm. being built, huge infrastructure projects that were happening all over the country. Skyscrapers. The cities being built. And this all needed labor. And so these newly arrived immigrants would become the majority of New York's day labor force. Another statistic here, in 1883, 15% of New York's day labor force was Italian. Just one decade later, in 1893, 75% of the day labor force would be made up of Italians. So during the Gilded Age, I think it's very fair to say, many of the great landmarks and monuments of the Gilded Age were constructed Constructed by Italian laborers. And to bring it back to our location here at Little Italy, most of these men lived around this neighborhood, although by the turn of the century, there were different Italian enclaves around Brooklyn and Queens and other areas. And they were also doing other kinds of jobs. They weren't just doing unskilled day labor things. They were a majority by 1894, for example, a majority of fruit sellers uh, were Italian in the city. 97% of boot blacks were Italian, for example. But in discussing this neighborhood, I think we have to talk about the actual neighborhood, not just what people were, what what they were working on or or the often miserable conditions in which they were living. Mm -hmm. But the the street was a vibrant place as well. There were, we have to imagine the push carts in the streets, the businesses open, the food shops that were open. What I find really interesting is now if we're in the 1890s, beginning of the 20th century, and you compare that with what's in Little Italy today, some of the biggest tourist attractions, the the big restaurants and pastry shops and shops and everything, many of them trace their origin from this particular decade that they have been open for well over 100 years. In terms of 
pastry shops. I think that that would take us directly to Ferrara's, Mm -hmm. which indeed opened in 1892. It's still there today in its fifth generation. It was opened by Enrico Scopa and Antonio Ferrara when they opened Cafe A Ferrara's, which specialized in cakes and cookies and espresso and still open right there at the corner of Grand and Mulberry. I mean, today it's like a wonderland of sugar and delicious sweet things. Everything from cannolis to delicious cakes and tiramisu. And if you look straight across the street, you'll see Oliva Dairy, which is the nation's oldest Italian cheese store. It started by Pina Oliva after she moved to New York from Benevento, Italy. It's at the corner of Grand and Mulberry, just across the street at 188 Grand. It still uses the same recipe for mozzarella and ricotta today, and that dates back again to 1892, the same year as Ferrara. Now, just A few years later, in 1897, a certain Gennaro Lombardi opened a grocery store at 53 Spring Street, so just just a couple blocks up. He was soon selling tomato pies, which he'd wrap up with a string, and in 1905 received a license to operate a pizzeria. And this is the genesis, of course, of Lombardi's Pizzeria, which is the first in the country, but not the oldest continuously operating pizzeria because it did close in 1984 and opened a decade Mm -hmm. later. These are places that people all over New York come to because they're very famous. Right. But when they opened at the beginning of the century, it was primarily for the Italians that lived in those neighborhoods. Right. You came from Italy, you you missed the mozzarella cheese back home, and so you went to Oliva Dairy Mm -hmm. on Grand Street, or you went to DiPaolo's next door, which opened in 1910. This was opened by Savino Di Paolo, who was a cheesemaker living in a southern Italian mountain town. He leaves for New York in 1910, and he opens up this dairy in Little Italy. His family would join him four years later. Today, Di Paolo's, which is located at 200 Grand Street, is still there in its fifth generation, still making their own fine cheeses. Today, it's run by Lou and his son, Sam. (laughs) But that's located on that same block as Oliva and as Pimonti Ravioli. It's quite a block there, uh, (laughs) just at the corner. All these classic places that are right here at this, almost at this corner. And we're providing people with the, the tastes of back home. On top of, of course, all of the dozens of food carts that were outside, Streets were always crowded. And adding a score to this whole bustling, chaotic scene were the organ grinders. Mm. Let us not forget (laughs) the fact that some of the Italian immigrants arriving to make money created music to make a living, including organ grinders who would turn out a a melody on a hand-cranked organ, usually accompanied by a small monkey, rest to the nines. (laughs) And the monkeys were a key part of it because they could hop around, they could even scale walls and scale up to take money from the hands of people who might be listening to the music uh, from their windows. Uh, Oh, yeah. So always an attention grabber here. And according to Tyler Anbinder in his book Five Points, by 1880, nearly one in 20 Italians living in Five Points were organ grinders, which I really just... (laughs) That's a lot of monkeys. And it was was before a lot more Italians had arrived, obviously. But in the early days, in 1880s, organ grinding was a key (laughs) way to make money for people who arrived. Uh, They could even rent uh, the organs, and you could rent monkeys or buy them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a whole thing. They'd eventually be outlawed by, by an Italian 
American himself, Mayor LaGuardia, who would outlaw them in 1936, saying that radio and concerts had made organ grinders redundant. I don't know what concerts I've recently seen with monkeys darting about the stage, but it's probably unsanitary. Yes, I think he was also perhaps, I think he was also trying to discourage street begging, he said, and I think to overcome a certain cultural stereotype as well. But the 20th century would bring new aspects to Italian life, some of them that would make things quite difficult for the newly arriving Italian immigrants, and some of them, speaking of these stereotypes, that would linger in the Italian community for well into the end of the century. We'll get to that and many more colorful details after the commercial break. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to the show. Okay, Greg, so we're back in this bustling, colorful, vibrant neighborhood, mostly along Mulberry Mott, Elizabeth Streets. I see the streets filled with people. I smell the, f- the food that they're eating and buying in the grocery stores. There are a wide variety of smells happening mm. on Mulberry. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A major change came to the neighborhood in the 1890s. Now, the Five Points neighborhood, those tenements had been there for decades. Well, thanks to the crusades of Jacob Rees and the city leaders at the time, the worst of those tenements were torn down. In 1897, a new park was built there. So they originally called it Mulberry Bend Park and would later become Columbus Park in 1911, partially due to the growing influence of the Italians that were here. So now now this neighborhood, which had been so dense, now had a an outdoor park. But a it little was room to breathe. A little room, but there's still a lot of tenements around here and still so many people. But this park would be the site of cultural events in the neighborhood, 
some political events and some union organizing. So, you know, by the first part of the 20th century, Italian workers would actually be on the forefront of a lot of labor activism and a lot of the unrest at the conditions of their workplaces. And they fought back for greater rights and bonding with other immigrant classes at this time as well. But this new prominence in the labor scene reinforced, you know, there was a certain fear of foreigners, of course, but specific fear of these Italians and the types of philosophies they brought over. They're frightened of these foreign ways of thinking, political ways of thinking. I'm, of course, referring to like anarchism, socialism. As early as 1895, I read in the New York Times, quote, The general tone of the Italians in New York has grown higher as they have increased in numbers. Most of their fights and deeds of violence have been confined among themselves and have been due generally to old feuds or to quarrels over the gambling table. They admit, however, that among the immigrants a number of restless political spirits came. Among these are anarchists and probably members of secret societies who, under the guise of patriotism, try and live upon their hard-working countrymen by political propaganda or intimidation, mm-hmm. unquote. Now, in the new century, some of this fear and some of these new forces would play out in a few terrifying ways and the scary part is is that initially it would be directed not out at other people in the city but at other italians in the neighborhood oh so there were forces within the community who were targeting other italian immigrants in the form of the very scary shadowy group called the black hand which would perpetrate extortion and blackmail plots that would be aimed directly at newcomers from people from other Italian communities who were taking advantage of people's language barriers and their distrust of law enforcement um, and taking advantage of these closed communities, knowing that people would not report this type of extortion. How were they intimidating business owners? Were they forcing them to give kickbacks? What were they doing? Families and proprietors of shops would receive letters demanding money, and people who did not pay up, their loved ones would be kidnapped, their shops would be dynamited. And so this is a really terrifying thing to think about. This really closed neighborhood with hundreds of people in the street would see a series of dynamite attacks and explosions between the years 1900 and 1920s. Just going through the newspapers at this time was kind of horrifying to see the number of explosions that would happen in the neighborhood. Just as a sampling here, 1905, on the corner of Grand and Mott Street, a butcher shop was blown up. 1907, at Elizabeth and Kenmar, two police officers were almost killed in a dynamite explosion. 1909, at Spring and Mott, an arson that had been perpetrated by the Black Hand killed nine people. So think of just all of these explosions in a tiny neighborhood, how dangerous that was and how frightening it would have been for individuals living here. And were the police investigating these? Were, were they helpless here? No, oh, no, no. Well, the press was, of course, outraged and angered and brought this up to the attention of the entire city. In 1908, I read, quote, 
Where and how are bombs manufactured? Who are the unnatural Americans engaged in the nefarious work of murder? And what is the motive that impels bomb throwing in this city of greatest personal liberty? The following year in 1909, the New York Police Department's first Italian detective by the name of Joseph Petrosino. I believe we've (laughs) talked about him before. Yes, in our cases of the NYPD show. He was at the forefront of cracking down on this black hand crime and was looked up to by the entire community as representing them and fighting back against this. Unfortunately, when Petrosino went on a secret mission to Sicily to investigate and unravel some of these connections, possible connections between the domestic crimes and those foreign organized crimes, he was assassinated while he was over there in March of 1909. That brought just terrible grief, an outpouring of grief to this to this community. And a huge public funeral. A hu- yes, at Old St. Pat's, uh, uh, right up the street. And in fact, thousands lined the streets when they had the procession. And his body was actually displayed at a social club at Lafayette and Springs. So right in this neighborhood. Today, the square that is found uh, at the end of Kenmar Street, right there at Lafayette and Kenmar, is named after him. It's Petrosino Square. In 1913, the New York Department of Combustibles, which I can't Wait, believe... that's it, a department? It was a de- there were so many bombs that they had a whole department of... of called combustibles. The department of Combustibles claimed that there were 125 bomb explosions in the city just that year. Interestingly enough, by 1920, however, the black hand extortions had kind of died out. You had better police techniques, and the community was a little less closed, and so a little bit more open to to reporting these crimes. And I also read something interesting, that a change in the law involving the Postal Service actually affected things, because... There was a law criminalizing threatening material in the mail, meaning that these black handers needed to deliver notes instead of mailing them. And so that's a little less successful. So that dies out as a as a as an effective extortion plot because they had been extorting uniquely through the mail. Mostly it was like just letters through the mail. Yeah. Mm hmm. Well, there's a new problem, though, by 1920, though. I think you know where I'm going with this. Organized crime and the rise of the mafia in the United States. Very serious problem, the mob. And much of their operations would be here in the area of Little Italy. Now, this is such a monster topic. Right. In fact, it could be its own show. It, it, it should be a sh- its own show and maybe even a series of shows. So I can't get into the whole scope of things here. Of course, prohibition actually empowers organized crime and empowers a whole network, a whole underworld here. And there would be, you know, foreign influences that would take advantage of that. And so it would be an incredibly sophisticated organization by the 1920s. Virtually every address, this is extraordinary, virtually every address up and down along Mulberry Street and the side streets have been the site of some sort of like the home of a famous mobster or like a place where he hung out or a place where he died Mm -hmm. um, up and down these streets. I mean, it's a it's like extraordinary how dense this area is with these types of stories. Wow, so it's like mob roulette. Let's just throw out <laughs> let's just throw out an address here. How about um, Mulberry and Kenmar? 
Well, that's funny you say that, actually. Did you oh, read my notes? Because actually, <laughs> to me, that's a very fascinating corner in the history. Because in the early days of Prohibition, this corner, Mulberry and Kenmar, was called the Bootlegger's Curb Exchange. So this is like like in the early days where we're trying to figure out what they can do and what they can't do on the streets. They would have like speakeasy owners and illicit alcohol distributors that would gather on these corners to buy cases of rum and beer off of trucks. I mean, what makes this so almost... Right in the street, right in front of... Right, like, in, right in the street. Pretty close to police headquarters. Like a, a block from police headquarters, like two blocks from police headquarters. It's extraordinary, the audacity here. Let's go down a little. On 121 Mulberry Street was one of the many places where uh, mobsters would gather to discuss illicit liquor sales. In 1922, cops raided this address at 121 and found thousands upon thousands of liquor bottles and barrels of rum. Today, that is the charming northern Italian restaurant, Il Cortile. In fact, many of these Italian restaurants have a few stories, and I would recommend if you go to one of these restaurants, ask an owner, ask one of the waiters. I'm sure they all have wonderful tales. So these stories could go on and on, I'm sure, throughout Prohibition. Did it pretty much die off? I don't think it dies off after Prohibition. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, rumors of connections to the mob still exist in this neighborhood today, but it was really thriving in the 70s and 80s. And I wanted to bring up one more example from here. We're breaking the timeline a little bit, but I think it's very important. Um, at 132 Mulberry is a restaurant called Umberto's Clam House. Right. They do have the clams. They're good there. That is their current location. But in when they first opened in 1972, they were at 129 Mulberry. Today, that is the restaurant at Dajaneros. This was originally owned, this restaurant, by the, uh, the father of a mobster nicknamed Matty the Horse. We've mentioned Matty the Horse on a podcast. Do you remember that name? In the 1960s, he was part of a big extortion racket over in the West Village in the gay bars. Oh, um, and, you know, in the Stonewall show. Yes, in fact, one of the bars that he sort of like had a racket over was Stonewall. In 1972, at Umberto's Clam House here on the corner, in April, on April 7th, 1972, the gangster Joe Gallo was assassinated here in the in the restaurant in a hail of bullets. I mean, it is about as Francis Ford Coppola as you can possibly imagine, actually. And if you look at some of these old photographs, it looks quite striking, needless to say. All right. Well, on that grim note, why don't we <laughs> talk about something a little more festive? Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the things that draws thousands and thousands of, uh, of tourists and locals to Little Italy every year is the Feast of San Gennaro, an 11-day, currently, 11-day festival that, that packs Mulberry Street all the way from Houston down to Canal. So it does go right through that area called Nolita. <laughs> To their consternation, to their I think, consternation, right. Recently, right. But. In, in fact, some of the fancy pants merchants of Nolita have tried to force them to start it outside of their neighborhood because they didn't want the, quote, greasy hands <laughs> of its patrons getting all over their fancy 
clothing. Well, I mean, there's a lot of great food. There's a lot of people from outside of the city who come in. And, you know, those are like some upscale retailers. So, I mean, it's an interesting well, modern class. they should clash. deal with it. They moved I into know. that neighborhood. Uh, hello. So, the, the, the San Gennaro Festival started <laughs> in September of 1926 as a one-day festival to celebrate the patron saint of Naples, San Gennaro. Uh, his feast day is September 19th, and so they celebrated on that date in 1926 to celebrate the safe arrival of a boatload of immigrants into New York City from Naples. The highlight of this event is the grand procession, in which occurs on the, the last Saturday of the feast and follows a mass at the Church of the Most Precious Blood, which is located at 109 Mulberry Street. So, San Gennaro Festival would originate from here and would be an outdoor festival, which is a very southern Italian thing to do right. things in sort of like these well, outside and boisterous back, places. Right. We really haven't, we didn't even touch on religion because, well, we've talked about a lot of other things <laughs> and we have a short show. But the importance of religion needs to be stated here as well in the lives of the immigrants who are arriving Many of those first immigrants, being young men who were arriving here, weren't necessarily attending church so often, to the consternation of the city's other Catholics at the time, who were basically the Irish population, who couldn't believe that these uh, Italian immigrants were not attending church as they should be, and when they were, they weren't made to feel very welcome. They had to take seats downstairs in the basement. Yeah, they, they often they, had to meet in the basement of these places. There was a language barrier happening here as well, because most of them didn't speak English, so they weren't really communicating well, the mass was difficult, etc. So they were often in the in the basement, and which was just a total slap in the face. So they took many of their celebrations to the streets, which was a very southern Italian way to celebrate. And there are actually other Italian religious festivals in New York City that usually take place outside. But this one is the most prominent, at least in this neighborhood. Today's celebration is also kind of a... It's a riot of, of smells and sights. There are games. There are all kinds of food stands. A lot of sausage vendors a lot the of so A lot of fried cheese. A lot of fried everything, really. So how do we get to today's Little Italy from this authentic old neighborhood um, that was rich in Southern Italian culture to what I would describe maybe as a little ship-in-a-bottle type Disney-esque tourist-focused shadow of its former self? Ooh. So there's a lot of changes that happen in the mid-20th century that get us here. One of them is that these second and third generation Italian Americans are having great successes in assimilating finally into American life. Of course, large scale, everything from like Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia to entertainers like Tony Bennett to small scale here where family members are leaving to have their own life and living in other places and are prone to scattering throughout the city because now you can communicate better, obviously. But so. this was also the point of the immigrants who were yeah. heading over, like for the other immigrant immigrant populations as well, was to pass through this neighborhood to sort of land on their feet and be able to make some money mm -hmm. so that they'd be able to succeed and move out to the suburbs and buy a house. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, Little Italy was never really meant to be 
uh, a destination. A permanent... Right, for a lot of people. There's also the rise of populations of the outer boroughs after the war, after World War II. And that, of course, swelled these new Italian neighborhoods, many of them which are intact today, places like Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, Bensonhurst, and Ozone Park. In fact, Staten Island has the highest percentage of Italian-Americans in the United States. You know, people wanted, after living in this neighborhood that was so cramped, people wanted front yards. They wanted to be able to have actual houses. They didn't want to live on top of each other, you know? So the dwindling Italian population in Little Italy Mm -hmm. could be basically a victim of its own success. In 1968, with the change in U.S. immigration quota policies, this would be a huge boon to the neighboring Chinatown, as thousands of new Chinese immigrants would then come over in the 1970s, and Chinatown began taking over other blocks that had once been all Italian. And many of these Chinese were buying or renting spaces from the Italians who were happy to get rid of the spaces. A quote from Ernest Lepore, who owns Ferrara, told the New York Times in 2011, quote, When the Italians made money, they moved to Queens and New Jersey. They sold to the Chinese, who are now selling to the Vietnamese and Malaysians. Well, according to the last census, there are no Italian-born residents that live in the area of Little Italy. Now, in 2010, the Chinatown and Little Italy Historic District was created, and it's almost the entire lengths of the streets of Mulberry, Mott, and Elizabeth Street, and many other streets. And you know what? That historic district is needed because there is one other threatening force to this neighborhood, and that is, of course, the rise of gentrification. And let us go back to this neighborhood of Nolita one more time, this rebranded area of North Little Italy, one of the most historical and important areas to immigrant life in New York City. Today, it is overrun by these, you know, these shops. Great bookstore over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not... I'm not I'm we not, just ran into each yeah, other. I know. I'm not dissing at Nolita necessarily. It's just that, right. the, you know, and this... These kind of forces, this gentrification that's happening, is happening all over the city, and it seems to have gelled in a certain fashion here in the former Italian district of Lower Manhattan. Although I have to say, when I think about restaurants that I tend to go to, that you and I have dined in, places where we've had wine and met met with friends, mm-hmm. we do frequent places in Nolita much more frequently yeah. than we frequent places on Mulberry Street. But it is it does make you pause and you want to take a step back and realize, is this just going to happen? And is this little district of Little Italy going to become tinier and tinier? This area has survived a lot of very broad elimination plans in the past. Everything from Robert Moses's Lower Manhattan Expressway, which would have plowed through Broom Street and would have eradicated pretty much most of this neighborhood, survived that. In 1970s, it survived mob control and the coercion that ran amok during this period. It was in this time when the city, for the very first time, created these new zoning laws, these special zones, where construction of new buildings had to conform to a certain size and shape. 
of the present structure. So essentially, if you look, there are a lot of like skyscrapers, and it's very specially zoned. Now at this historic district, we will not see some like lunatic glass skyscraper, a Trump um, Tower. Hopefully, hopefully not. And area businesses today focus on the specific nostalgia of what people collectively believe old Italian New York used to be, right? So you have to look at the neighborhood today and think, well, how is it going to survive going forward into the future? What's it going to look like in 10 years? Well, hopefully many of these stores and restaurants will still be around. When I think about the the food shops that are still there on Grand Street and that we can still support, like DiPaolo's, like Piemonte Ravioli. These are places, you know, I still like picking up some ravioli for a dinner party at Piemonte because it's made maybe not in the back, maybe it's often in Queens at their warehouse, but it's still it's still a family run business. It's great to still be able to support these stores, these families, and this neighborhood's history. I would recommend if you are going down there on the weekends for lunch or just to like do some sightseeing to stop by the Italian American Museum, which is at the corner of Mulberry and Grand. It's inside of an old bank, an old building called the Banco Stabile, one of the oldest buildings on the block. In fact, you can go inside and see the original bank vault. It's an example of... uh, the ba- many banks that used to be up and down um, Mulberry, they used to call it the Italian Wall Street because mm. these were the places that these original Italian immigrants would send their money back home and where they would keep their money. Inside the museum is a lot of mem- memorabilia to specific Italian-Americans, but also to the Italian-American experience in New York. It's it's a very small museum. You can probably do it in like 15 or 20 minutes. And it's, it reminds me of a small town museum, which is not a slight actually, because... Well, it's appropriate. Yeah, in Little Italy, in so many ways, is kind of like a small town. It's just a small town where thousands of people have passed through. And uh, maybe after a little time in the museum, go to one of these great restaurants that lines Mulberry Street, even to this day. And then perhaps afterwards, stop over at Ferrara for a little late-night cappuccino and and biscotti. That's what we did on Friday. It was we delicious. Did. And uh, there's a lot of sugar late night, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of sugar to be had there. It's delicious. So thanks for joining us as we strolled through the history of New York's Little Italy. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com for photos and other information on some of the things that you heard in this show. As always, check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram, where we also make appearances and post little extra things. So, I mean, if, you, if you're if you into the history of Little Italy, I'll have a lot of extra stuff on there as well. And take note of that new website address. We've switched over. The address of the website is now Bowery Boys History. And finally, if you like what we do, go over to BoweryBoysHistory.com and click on our donate button. And we greatly thank anyone, everyone who's donated to the show thus far. All that money goes directly into the show for exciting new projects, for upgrades to our equipment, and um, just things to make the Bowery Boys experience all the better. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.